Good morning. How's everybody doing today? Oh, hey, uh, we're going to do a little interacting this morning, okay? Uh, I got some uh, questions uh, that I'm going to have you guys talk through with some folks that are maybe like sitting next to you, whoever you came with. Uh, the first thing uh, is I want you to finish this sentence, all right? The best things in life happen when you what? When you what? The best things in life happen when you turn to the person next to you, finish that sentence. All right, the best things in life happen when you, now, there are no wrong answers, all right, but I'm going to give you my answer this morning. The best things in life happen when you take a risk. Anybody have that one? Anybody say that one? Huh? Oh, wow, well done. The best things in life happen when you take a risk. So, I'd like you just to think back over the last, I don't know, few months, few years, whatever, the last time that you had an opportunity placed in front of you that was going to require risk. Did you do it? What was it? How did it go? Or did you not do it? Go ahead and turn to the person next to you. Share one thing that you've done. Maybe it was like asking someone out on a date. Maybe it was taking a new job. Maybe it was what. Turn to the person next to you, share one way that you took a risk in the last few years, or didn't, and why. Go ahead. All right, this one's going to be a, a little bit of an all play. I'd simply like you to raise your hand, okay, not, not yet. Raise your hand if someone took a risk and invited you to TLC. If someone took a risk and invited you to TLC, raise your hand. Okay, so a few of you. All right, uh, raise your hand if someone took a risk and invited you to join their local group or to join their serve team? Raise your hand. Okay, all right. Raise your hand if someone took a risk and invited you to do something with them outside of church. So go out for a meal, grab coffee, hang out. Oh, wow, more than I, more than I would have even thought on that one. Very good. You see, when people take risks in our lives, it has the potential to do beautiful things. When we hold back and play it safe, we often miss out on some of the best things that God 
has for us. Um, I've got a couple of different uh, risk scenarios that are ones that I personally uh, engaged with. Um, some of these are a little bit older than others, but I wanted to share them with you. The first one is um, a risk that I wound up not taking. Uh, my wife and I had been married for uh, just a handful of years. Living here in GR, uh, we had bought our first house um, down in uh, Heritage Hill. Uh, this is 2001. Housing market was very, very different than it is today. And uh, we were living there, and uh, I met a couple of other uh, folks that had um, some rental properties. And I was like, oh, um, that's kind of an interesting idea. Mostly it was because um, I really wanted to own a particular house. Uh, it was this house. This is beautiful, right? Uh, this house is on Madison. It's uh, one street outside of Heritage Hill, which now I think is called South Hill. It's got its own you know, name or whatever now. Uh, give me the next picture, too. You can just, this thing is, it's gorgeous. Six-car garage, uh, about 6,000 square feet. It was actually cut up into five different apartments at the time. Uh, really, what I was hoping is that my wife, uh, that I could convince her to sell our home uh, and buy that one and go and live there and try to figure out how to make it back into a single family. But I knew she would never go for that. So I was just like, I like this house so much. Maybe she'll let me uh, buy it and I'll convince her that it'll be a great investment property, right? Because if you could buy that and you got five apartments, da-da-da-da. Um, she was not having it. Didn't matter what I said, how I kind of sold it to her. I was like, babe, uh, this could be awesome. Uh, could be, you know, a real moneymaker. And now, I'm also uh, one who sees, and, and the house didn't look this nice back in 2001, uh, but I can see the potential, what something could be. Uh, Brenda tends to see the work, what it's actually going to take to get it there. Uh, I just try to black that out. Like, no, no, like, in, you wake up, and then it's like that. Uh, so, uh, finally, though, after we had argued about this um, for a, a number of months, I had met the owner uh, he had another rental property that was on the street we lived on. Um, I think he had three or four in the Grand Rapids area. Uh, I had had some conversations with him. Um, she finally said to me, I don't think we should do it, but if you think it's a wise choice for our family and the kingdom, then I'll trust you. Well, before I was arguing out of an idea of what it might be. Now, all of a sudden, I have the opportunity to actually make a decision. She's given me the keys. What am I going to do? So then I started having real conversations, like what would it actually cost? How much would I actually have to invest? What would the house be? Now, here's the kicker. Uh, back in 2001, I could have bought that house for, we didn't fully settle on a price but about $190,000. Yes, I know. <laughs> Anybody that's tried to buy a house in the last couple of years is like, Ugh! uh It was just on the market, I think, a year and a half ago for like uh, a little over one million. Now, I don't think it's sold for that, but it was on the market. I said no. Now, Looking today, you're like, well, that was a dumb decision. You should have taken a risk. Look at how it would have paid off. Massive. Not only that, but I'd had rent. I had 
$800,000 just in equity, plus the rent for all that time. The house would probably be completely paid off by now. Do you know why that wasn't a good risk for me, though? It's because I wasn't taking the risk for my family or the kingdom. I was taking that risk for me. I just liked the house. I thought it looked really cool up on that hill. And God was gracious enough to put a little bit of wisdom and sense into myself that helped preserve my marriage and all my weekends and all my free time and all my time with my kids that were to come. And we didn't buy it. And I don't regret it for a second. About seven years ago, eight years ago, I was in a place, uh, and I'm going to just share some stuff that is just kind of personal um, for me. Um, I wasn't sure what God was up to in my life. I thought God had, uh, I knew that he had called me to, to lead a church. He had kind of uh, confirmed that about 15 years uh, earlier. We didn't think that he was asking us to do that at the time, but uh, over the next course of uh, 15 years, he began to say, like, see, this is what I've got for you. And I thought where he was bringing me, uh, church out in Holland, was the place that I was going to do that at. And uh, after three years, that all kind of disappeared. It didn't work. And I was, I was pretty lost, honestly. Um, I, uh, God had not gone, but God had gone silent. Do you know what I'm saying? I still sensed he was there, but I didn't feel like he was saying anything. And so I had um, some different options. And I wasn't real sure what one I was supposed to take. Uh, two of the options um, were to go uh, become the lead pastor at, at uh, two medium to large size established churches. They had their own building, had good budgets. Churches were um, both at a place where, although that they were healthy, there was a, a lot of opportunity for uh, growth and impact. Uh, both of the churches um, would have paid me considerably more than I was making at the time. Uh, both of the churches uh, had opportunity for me to hire uh, at least two, if not three, uh, people that I had done ministry with in the past and, and loved and respected. And uh, they seemed like both of those the way safer option. Everything seemed to be better least what I thought inside. And I was 41 at the time. I wasn't getting younger. It's like, Lord, this is my opportunity. I'm going to step into this role, and everything seems to be laid out. And then there was a third option. The third option was to, uh, to go on staff with, uh, with another church and patiently wait for a year and a half until some things would get worked out that they might decide to plant me at that time. And then I would plant the church at 42. And we would have a tiny budget. And we would have no building. And uh, the pay wouldn't increase at all. And I wouldn't be able to hire all the friends that I hoped that I would be able to hire. And so I did the logical thing. I took the established church, and that didn't work out, so I planted TLC. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I took a risk. Six years ago, 
to plant TLC. Now, I'm trying to be like, oh, I don't want it to feel like, oh, look at Torin, what he did, hey, Torin. I tell you all that because when we look around and see what God's done in the last five years, and we've got a, a great facility and so many people, when I look around and I see some of your eyeballs, I know the stories. I know the ways that God has caught you, captured your heart. Some of you that have found Jesus in this place, some of you that have recommitted after uh, decades of just being sleepwalking through your faith. It doesn't feel like a risk now. But I can tell you seven years ago when I was weighing out the options, this felt like the worst one by human standards, by a human standpoint. And I had a whole lot of uh, questions. I... Uh, I was not in a great spot, not in a great place emotionally. I was doubting the calling that God had placed on my life in some ways. I was doubting the gifts that God had given. I wasn't sure what he was up to. It's easy in hindsight to say, oh, that's not much of a risk. But at the time, I can tell you, man, it was scary as all get out for me. And it, probably even more so for Jordan and Dana. Jordan was at an established church that he loved. He had hired his own staff. And I came and I said, hey, man, would you consider leaving all of that and take a huge risk and let's plant a church and see what might happen? And at first he said no. <laughs> then I said, would you pray about it? And he and Dana began to pray. And I don't know who it was first, Jordan or Dana, but I have a have a belief it was probably Dana. He started to sense this is what God's calling us to. And so they took a huge risk. And now I look and see the things that God has done through a whole bunch of people, not just Jordan and I, not just our families, but a number of other folks that were at other churches that said, we want to be a part of this new thing. Started coming as part of the launch team, and some that started coming in that first year and have given their lives over the last five years for what God's been up to here. The best things happen, friends, when we take a risk. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to open up to uh, a really familiar story in Matthew chapter 25. Um, normally, when I teach, I teach out of the NIV. Uh, today, I'm actually going to read our text. Uh, from Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, uh, The Message. Uh, the reason that I'm going to do that is because I think that he helps us understand the heart and tenor of what's going on in this really uh, famous parable that Jesus is teaching in Matthew 25. So I'm going to read from The Message, and it starts off in verse 14 of Matthew 25. You can follow along in whatever translation that you have. But it says, it's also like a man, a very wealthy man, going off on an extended trip. This is the second parable that Jesus is teaching to his disciples at this time. So that's why he says, it's also like a very wealthy man going off on an extended trip. He called his servants together and delegated responsibilities. To one, he gave $5,000. It's actually not right, Eugene, but I'm going to give you a pass while I'm reading this, and I'll come back and talk about that in a minute. The to another 2,000, and to a third 1,000, depending on their abilities. Then the master left 
Right off, the first servant went to work and doubled his master's investment. The second did the same. But the man with the single thousand dug a hole and carefully buried his master's money. That is not an uncommon thing to happen at the time. All right? There were bankers around, we'll see in a minute, money changers. Uh, but it was not like the banking system that we have today. So a lot of folks would take and bury their valuable money, knowing where it was buried for safekeeping, and then it could dig it up. So that's what the third guy does. After a long absence, verse 19, the master of those three servants came back and settled up with them. The one given $5,000 showed him how he had doubled his investment. His master commended him. Good work. You did your job well. From now on, be my partner. The servant with the 2000 showed how he also had doubled the master's investment. His master commended him. Good work. You did your job well. From now on, be my partner. The servant given 1000 said, Master, I know you have high standards and hate careless ways, that you demand the best and make no allowances for error. I was afraid I might disappoint you, so I found a good hiding place and secured your money. Here it is, safe and sound, down to the last cent. The master was furious. That's a terrible way to live. It's criminal to live cautiously like that. If you knew I was after the best, why did you do less than the least? The least you could have done would have been to invest the sum with the bankers where at least I would have gotten a little interest. Take the thousand and give it to the one who risked the most and get rid of this play it safe who won't go out on a limb. Throw him out into utter darkness. If you grew up in church going to Sunday school, you've probably heard this story before, this parable. It's called the parable of the talents. I'll explain uh, why it's called the parable of the talents in just a little bit, but uh, I'd like to just kind of sum up and then we'll kind of hit it with these points. What's going on, okay? We've got uh, a few different characters. Number one, we've got the master, okay? Number two, we've got the money. Number three, we've got the servants. And then lastly, we have a lesson on how we view God and how that impacts the way that we live. So let's start with the master. The master is really, really wealthy, all right? And in this parable, the master is, of course, God. God's got loads of money, loads of resources, and we learn that he gives every single person a portion of that to take care of. All right? Not everybody gets the same amount, but every, everybody gets something. Okay? It's not how much you're given. It's how you take care of and cultivate what you've been given. Everybody's supposed to cultivate their talent, invest it in others, and expect a return. All right? We learn this about the master, that he has everything, tons, abundance, He's wealthy, and he gives everybody something, the money. So if you're reading from the NIV, what I usually teach out of, uh, you'll notice that it says that he gives five bags of gold to one, three bags of gold to the other, and one bag of gold to uh, the last. That's not actually uh, in the original language. Uh, in the original language, it's actually a, a Greek word that sounds a lot like the word we use as talents. And so if you're reading this in the ESV, you would see he gave five talents to one, three talents to another, and one talent to the other. 
all right? We actually get our English word talent from this parable, from that Greek word. And the reason we use it in English uh, to mean gifts, abilities that are valuable is because of what happens here. Now, in the original, when Jesus is saying this, and he says five talents, three talents, one talent, he's not actually talking about the gifts or abilities or passions that you have, right? Uh, if you're a baseball player, what do they call it? You're like a three-tool player? I'm not a baseball player. I don't remember. Is that what they call it? Five-tool? Five-tool. Thank you. Yes. Uh, so see, we got five-tool. I was a three-tool, obviously, or just a tool. I don't know. But... That's the idea, right? There are some people that have uh, um, more talents than others. In the New Testament, when Jesus is talking about this, though, he's not talking about a gift or ability. He's actually talking about a particular sum of money, okay? So uh, when Eugene Peterson says $5,000, $3,000, and $1,000, uh, with all due respect to Eugene, rest in peace, that's not even close, all right? Uh, a talent is actually 6,000 denarii. So one talent equals 6,000 denarii. A denarii is what you would get uh, the common day laborer after a full day's worth of work. All right? So one talent equals basically what you would earn over 6,000 days of work. So uh, for us today, let's just assume it's 10 bucks an hour, eight hour days. Uh, you times 80 times 6,000, you get $480,000. About a half a million dollars is what one talent is worth. So the first guy gets five talents, which would be about $2.5 million. That's legit money. The next guy gets $1.5 million because he gets three talents. And the other one gets a half a million dollars. All right? Big money, no matter how you slice that. What would you do if someone gave you that much money and asked you to take care of it? Legit question. Turn to the person next to you. Tell them what you would do if someone gave you that much money. You can pick, you can decide whether you're a five-talent, three-talent, or one-talent person. I don't care. Either way, it's a lot of money. What would you do if someone literally gave you that much money and said, take care of this for me? Go ahead, share with your neighbor. Some of y'all right now are trying to figure out how you can get an offshore bank account and like a fake passport, <laughs> take off with the master's money, two and a half million dollars. Um, my wife just reminded me that it's five, two, and one, not five, three, and one. It's actually, I think, five, three, and one in a different parable. So uh, two and a half, one million, and a half a million dollars doesn't matter because it's just a lot of money. So we've got the master, we've got the money, we understand it a little bit better, and we've got the servants. Uh, two of them take a risk and invest the money that had been entrusted to them, and they actually double it. Now it says that they put the money to work, or they went to work. 
So the, the best thing we can understand from the parable, because it's just a parable, is uh, they must have started some sort of a business, invested it in something. Uh, maybe uh, one of them uh, bought uh, a farm of cattle, hoping that uh, those cattle would reproduce and get bigger, and also hoping that there wasn't some sort of a, a, a bad flu that came in and wiped out all the cattle, right? If you've ever started a business, you know it's a risk. I don't know what the percentage is, but I'm sure it's not great for the amount of businesses that start and actually continue on and earn a profit. The two put the money to work, but they had to risk it. The third one, though, he actually doesn't want to take any risk, so he buries his, hides it, protected it. Didn't gain a cent, but he didn't lose a cent either, not even one. So when the master comes back, He's proud of the two, and he's furious at the third. Why? Why is he proud? I mean, like, it's easy to be like, oh, that's nice that they doubled the money. He had tons of money anyway. Why is he furious at the one who, who hit it? He didn't lose a single thing. How we view God impacts our response to what's been entrusted to us. This is what the entire parable is about. Uh, the first two servants have a very different assumption about the master, as does the third servant. The last servant, who buries his money, he thinks that the master is stingy, harsh, unfair. The servant who buries it has a scarcity mentality. There's only so much to go around. I need to protect what I have. I can't lose it. The master is not generous. He's not kind. He's not fair. So protect and hold on. The, the other two, though, they thought that the master was generous and kind and abundant. They had a very different view of God. They had an abundance mentality. And they weren't afraid to work. They knew that what had been entrusted to them was going to require effort on their part as well. 